1: That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. chumbacasinocom No purchase necessary. Over for by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Haiya. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating? snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity Voice Remote. The best conversations I have with my colleagues
2: are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet
0: what to write.
2: Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, deputy opinion editor.
0: And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu.
2: Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.
3: On this episode of Newt's World, I'm pleased to welcome Mark Mills to the podcast. His new book, The Cloud Revolution how the convergence of new technologies will unleash the next economic boom and a roaring 2020s is out now. He makes the case that a roaring 2020s is arriving and it won't come from any singular invention, but from the convergence of radical advances in three primary technology domains, microprocessors, materials, and machines. Accelerating and enabling this technological revolution, according to Mark, is the cloud, history's biggest infrastructure, which is itself made possible by the revolutions in those three technological domains. We've seen this pattern before. The technology revolution that drove the great economic expansion of the 20th century can be traced to a similar confluence, one that was first visible in the 1920s. A new information infrastructure, back then telephone and radio, new machines, cars and power plants, and new materials, plastics and pharmaceuticals. Single inventions don't drive great long cycle booms. It always takes convergent revolutions in technology's three core spheres, information, materials, and machines. Over history, that convergence has only happened a few times and every time it has had an extraordinary impact. Mark makes the case that a great convergence is now underway that will ignite the 2020s. And this time, unlike any previous historical epoch, we have the cloud amplifying everything. I'm really pleased to welcome Mark Mills.
4: Thanks for having me, Newt. I'm delighted to talk with you about all this stuff.
3: Well, before we get into the book itself, I wonder if you'd share a little bit of your background. I understand that you're a physicist by training.
4: I confess, although one doesn't usually confess that in the Washington circles that I live in, in cocktail parties. It's a conversation killer.
3: (laughs) Well, but it does give you a unique background to be thinking about these things.
4: I actually did real work at one time in my life, invented things, have patents, and Worked in missile guidance, fiber optics, and microprocessors in my early career. So it has informed how I look at forecasting and policy because, like a lot of people, what you do early in your life sort of imprints how you think.
3: Well, and you also, as I understand it, were at the convergence of technology and science and politics and government when you served in the Reagan White House science office.
4: Yeah, that was a profoundly more valuable experience than I realized at the time. You know, I was a young man, and I enjoyed it. It was incredibly fascinating. But as you know from the Reagan White House, which was run by adults, the kids, like me, (laughs) didn't meet with the president. They kept us in cubicles, gave us our job. And the science office is sort of a backwater, always has been, which is, I learned, a profound advantage. You could sort of maneuver and do things, learn things, go places low-profile, but it was great experience. I learned a lot about how policy works, which I had, honestly, minimal interest in earlier in my life, and my career, and it really animated my long-standing interest in policy, which is why I'm at the Manhattan Institute now, frankly. Policy matters. As I write in my book, I mean, I'm excited about what the future offers, but I have a predicate, my introduction. You got to get the politics right, because one can Sovietize an economy. We've seen it happen. My book's not about that, but I have to start with the preface that we do have to get the politics right to unleash this boom.
3: Well, in addition to your policy studies at the Manhattan Institute, you also are a faculty fellow at the Northwestern University's McCormick School of Engineering and Applied Science, and you co-direct the Institute on Manufacturing Science and Innovation, which strikes me as a pretty useful place to be thinking about the kind of changes that you focus on.
4: It is. It's kind of an honorific to be a faculty fellow. You know, I mean, a fellow is a different thing than having to be a professor. I get a lecture a year kind of thing. But what it gives me access to, and I get the luxury of talking to the people, and you know the phrase, the people who invent the future. These are the kinds of engineers and scientists, incredibly creative, bright. Not many people hear about it. I mean, once in a while, names pop up in the news because something gets invented or reported But that's where the revolutions are happening. And in fact, you know, the reason I wrote the book in large measure is that you see the future in the present. I mean, what businesses will manufacture, what services will have, aren't ideas that are invented tomorrow. There are things that were invented a little while ago. They're not quite commercial, just sort of proto-commercial. You see that in that environment. And it's exciting. In almost every domain one touches on when you talk to these innovators, boy, it's profoundly exciting. It's a luxury. It really is.
3: Well, and then you get to test out your theories in the real world as a partner in Montrose Lane, which is an energy tech venture fund. So at one level, you're literally putting your money where your mouth is.
4: Yes, literally, I'm doing that. I have a dog in the race, as they say. The other domain I've spent time on is this venture world, investment world. And you'll appreciate this. When I first got involved in venture in a fund in New York City, I live in Washington, D.C. area, but doing a lot of policy. And I used to tell my friends, oh, you know, I'm leaving Spin Alley, going up to do some work in finance where, you know, the facts matter. And what I learned was, guess what? (laughs) It's about spin there, too.
3: (laughs) Now, before you got to writing your book on the cloud, you wrote a book on work in the age of robots and a book on digital cathedrals. Can you just very briefly sort of tell us what your thesis was?
4: Sure, and I weave a lot of those ideas into my longer book. Those are both shorter books for those who have short attention spans, which could be a lot of us. So work in the age of robots was a brief exploration of a very simple idea. We are on the cusp of the age of robots, almost in the way science fiction imagined it. You know, people call automatic washing machines robots. That's true. They're autonomous. But everybody knows what they mean by robot when you say that word. We're on the cusp of profound automation advances which is very positive for job creation as opposed to the thesis of job destruction. In my book on digital cathedrals, is more focused on the cloud itself, the data centers that sit at the center of the cloud. Google engineers created a word some years ago called them warehouse-scale computers because these buildings are the size of a Walmart. And, you know, for science fiction fans, if you've never been in one, it's like going into the Borg ship, (laughs) just this massive building full of blinking lights and computers, no people. So the warehouse-scale computers, the digital cathedrals of our era, are those are the skyscrapers of our era. But they're invisible to everyday sort of life in terms of physical visibility, but they are at the heart of the cloud. So I wrote about that infrastructure, which is incredible. I mean, I think most people in general commerce, when they hear the word cloud or data center, it doesn't mean much. Well, it's a big building full of computers, hence warehouse scale computer. But maybe to put context on how big this infrastructure is, the capital spending, dollars spent on hardware, building out the cloud globally, is now greater than the total amount of money being spent by all the world's electric utilities building out hardware to make electricity. I mean, it's a stunning physical infrastructure.
3: And that's one of the things that I've always struck with as I looked at the whole rise of modern information flow, that there's just these massive systems all across the planet.
4: It's staggering at scales. You know the expression, which has became very famous, the information superhighway, which, of course, Vice President then-Senator Gore got credit for coining, but he borrowed it from an engineer who, who actually coined it, and it was made popular by an artist, Nine Pack, back in the 70s. But the information superhighway is actually a good way of thinking about it because it's a highway, right, We're moving information on it. Of course, the information highways have a feature that physical highways don't have. You can do mathematical tricks on an information highway. that are the equivalent of stacking up, I don't know, 5,000 layers of roads on the same roadway. You can't do that in the physical world. In the virtual world, you can do that. And the highways have a length. I mean, you can measure them the way you measure physical highways. Well... The physical highways of the world, we measure the collective lengths in the sort of tens and hundreds of thousands of miles. The information highways, we now measure them in lengths of billions of miles. So now we have not only billions of miles, as you say, they're ubiquitous. We connect with an invisible highway system on the order of 3 billion humans. There's billions more to connect, and we're going to connect them all but this is just unprecedented in history to have direct connectivity to billions of people in real time. It was a big deal to go to the telegraph, right? When we connected communities instantaneously. So you have one connection per community. Then we went to the telephone with one connection per household. The cell phone got us one connection per person, but the cloud gets us connections to people and machines and our cars. The scale of this is so hyperbolic that even hyperbole sort of fails to capture how amazing it is.
3: Well, can you explain something to me which I want to confess up front I am totally ignorant of? What is a metaverse, and why is that becoming a new conversation?
4: Well, the metaverse is a funny word. It's kind of hard to find myself agreeing with Zuckerberg. I mean, (laughs) he makes himself not necessarily someone everyone wants to agree with, but he's on to something with this idea of metaverse. What they're really talking about is the importance of going into computing systems that allow you to engage in virtual or augmented reality. We know what that means if I say people who are video gamers and you can wear these goofy, clunky goggles. I mean, they still are goofy and clunky, as magical as they are. And you can see a virtual universe, right? A virtual space. And you can play in it. You can shop in it. But what the idea that is captured by this... It's probably not the right word. I don't know how sticky it's going to be. What we're doing now is allowing the expansion of the Internet and the cloud to allow you not just to see planar images, not just to see pictures of things, but to overlay information or images onto reality. That's augmented reality. A good example would be if you're you're looking at something with your cell phone, as you know, some people use this function... I can use the camera to overlay and have information about the thing I'm looking at. Instead of taking a picture of a building, you can have your camera live. And while you're looking at the building through your smartphone, it will say what that building is and what its address is. That's augmented reality. Virtual reality would be I'm playing a game and the building looks real, but actually I can move it around like it's a toy. Those things are kind of fun for games they're extraordinarily important for things like education and training or for healthcare, because already this is no longer a theoretical idea. There are several businesses offering physicians the means to use virtual and augmented reality to take high-resolution images of your body and practice surgery before they perform the surgery on you, including overlaying images, virtual reality, on you as surgery is going on. This is really consequential as they extend that into all manners of the physical world, manufacturing and construction. It really amplifies our ability to do things safely, more precisely, faster. Same on training. I mean, virtual and augmented reality, the metaverse, will allow us to enhance the skilled training domains that are now lagging. If you want to learn a skill, you have to do the thing, that's always been true. But 100 years ago, when Link created the flight simulator, he profoundly improved the speed with which we could train pilots. In World War II's fatality rate in training new pilots collapsed. It got far safer by using the simulator first. And then you fly a real plane in practice. That kind of simulation is extremely difficult to do but now becoming feasible to do across all kinds of domains because of what we'll loosely call the metaverse, but what's made possible by better vision systems, better computing, better imagers, you know, all the things that are the hardware side, combined with more powerful computing, allow us to do this realism, virtual reality, augmented reality, for those kinds of spaces. I think while Zuckerberg and the metaverse, and renaming the company, are focused clearly on social stuff. I'm sure they know what their goal is. Their goal is to, frankly, get into things like education and healthcare.
3: So just to be clear for a second, so the early flight simulators, for example, were, in a sense, primitive examples of creating a metaverse.
4: Yeah, I think you live in the metaverse when you're in a flight simulator. The new flight simulators are profoundly realistic if you've ever had the luxury of being in one.
3: I crashed a 777 Delta in a simulator. They reassured me I was exactly lined up with the runway, but I was about a half mile short. But that the wreckage would have actually gone straight down the runway, so. (laughs) I thought I had some dignity getting out of the plane. (laughs) (laughs) Well, see, that's
4: exactly why we have simulators. And of course, the big equipment makers already have simulators for excavators. These are big pieces of expensive equipment. Better that you learn on the simulator first before you practice early on in the real equipment. And as that technology gets cheaper, it inevitably gets cheaper, It moves into sort of the kinds of things we do in daily life.
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
3: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've
1: summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa
2: he says somebody's in the house and i screamed
1: listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare
0: it's time for today's lucky land
2: horoscope with victoria cash life's gotten mundane so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to lucky land you know what they say
1: playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell, I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now.
3: One of the key points you make, which I agree with totally, is that these kind of patterns tend to occur as a complex interactive wave in which you're getting breakthroughs in three or four different areas in parallel. And that it's the synergistic effect of each one working with the other to create opportunities that literally did not exist.
4: That's the essence of what innovation is, as you know. I mean, when you look at the brilliant innovators, inventors, the captains of industries of the past and the present, the tech titans today, most of them are building on, and they'll acknowledge this, on what others have done. What they do is they see a combination that others missed. I mean, the most obvious, iconic example would be the smartphone itself. Everybody wanted to make smaller computers and better cell phones. But Steve Jobs was the one that took three things. that His company had nothing to do with inventing. You know, the collapsing size and power of the microprocessor, the computer chip, they didn't invent it. But it finally got powerful enough and small enough that that combined with a TV screen that's flat and tiny, which he didn't invent. It was then an LCD screen, liquid crystal display, and combined with the lithium battery because you can't power the thing with a lead-acid battery. Otherwise, you'd be carrying around the battery like your car starter battery. It's hardly a practical handheld device. He didn't invent that either. It was invented by an Exxon chemist in the 70s, of all things, for which he got a Nobel Prize. But the three things maturing in parallel, independent of Apple, all available. He recognized it. And his team did this delicious design of a machine that revolutionized the world, and everybody imitated it. That's how the car was invented. Henry Ford didn't invent the assembly line, or the internal combustion engine, or high strain steel, all three of which had to mature contemporaneously to allow the invention of the Model T.
3: So when you look at this kind of synergistic effect, and I read one time that, if you actually look at the evolution of certain things, the really big breakthroughs often take a full generation to work into the system, to reshape the factory, to reshape the products. It doesn't happen overnight, but that you have this steady migration as people learn how to do it and as they gradually improve the whole system. Looking at the economy, how do you see the next 10 to 20 years?
4: Your point is exactly right. If you talk to an entrepreneur who has an incredibly successful company and ask him, how long did it take you to get to where you are? (laughs) The overnight success is always a decade or it's a long slog, sometimes 20 years. Andy Grove wrote about this before he died about the inflection point where, you know, companies just take off the overnight successes. You know, I dabbled in history throughout my book because the history matters, right? It tells you something about the future in terms of patterns, And they're predictive in ways that are sort of, I think, somewhat obvious. To your point, all of the technologies that profoundly affected the 1920s, and let's go back to that period, all of them were invented 10 to 30 years earlier. What happened was they were all becoming useful by that time. The car was invented in the late 19th century. It was 1890s. But to make a useful car took almost 25 years. And that was when the first Model A showed up. And then the Model T was really useful, took off. That's true for the radio, it's true for the television, it's true for computers, by the way. The first computer was actually before the ENIAC. It was in Illinois in 1936. And we'd go back to mechanical computers, as you know, to Babbage, far earlier. The pattern is interesting. It's typically 10 to 20 years from an idea to the first realization as a product. And then it's another 10 to 20 years before that product is commercially viable. And it's after that that you get businesses creating things when you get the quote inflection point. What I looked at in my book is I'm really more interested not in what is invented today that might make something possible in the year 2050. I was interested in exactly the same pattern. What's been invented, but not really commercial, but it's 10 years in. And now we might expect it to be commercially viable. And maybe 15 years in, but it's not really a significant market yet. So what do I expect in the 2020s? Well, robots are now possible. We've been talking about anthropomorphic or untethered or rolling robots for a very long time in modern history. I mean, the word robot was created by, as you know, Kapschak back 100 years ago last year in a play about machines that would relieve the drudgery of horrible work, the hard work. Well, it's still what we want to do. They're damned hard to make. And it took advances sort of in three key areas, not in computing so much. Computing matters. The cloud infuses everything. Microprocessors are sort of the predicate in all the revolutions of the next century. But it took advances in material science to make the kinds of actuators that are possible to have the power to sort of be synthetic muscles. And it took vision systems to allow the robot, whether it's wheeled or walking, to be able to do what we do be aware of its environment. All those, by the way, were invented by companies to make cameras better, for example, in smartphones, or to make cruise controls better in cars, not roboticists. And of course, it took a power source. It took really cheap, powerful batteries, lithium battery, because you've got to have it untethered or it's not really useful. A robot can't be dragging a cord around behind it everywhere it goes. So robots are coming, and we're seeing them first in warehouses, which is kind of interesting. Physical warehouses, one of the oldest pieces of infrastructure in civilization. They date back to the Greek times, and we've been having warehouses forever. And they haven't changed much, except now. They're now being invaded by untethered robots that are relieving the problem that e-commerce created in the cloud. Everybody does one click.
3: By the way, I just watched a BBC special on a grocery store warehouse, which was totally robotic. And they fill up your bag with your order. It's amazing.
4: We haven't got a nomenclature for those yet. The two favorite terms are cloud kitchens or dark kitchens. And so the food, not just the grocery store, but the restaurant, right, is almost entirely automated, in some cases fully automated. And the human beings are on the periphery, so to speak, physically or operationally. These things have been possible. Engineers have imagined them. They've made them. But they've been too expensive, too unreliable, too difficult to control. And they're maturing now. And to your point, the BBC special you saw illuminates this revolution. And does it matter? But sure. As you well know, what we have going on now in the demography of the marketplace is the great resignation. We have more jobs than we have people who can do them. We have more skilled jobs than people who have skills to do them. The boomers have decided to retire. Remember before covid And the lockdowns, Pew Research published a poll pointing out that boomers are going to work into their 80s. They just didn't want to retire. They're going to be around forever. Well, guess what? (laughs) They've had enough. I'm out of here. So it just totally flipped. And of course, the birth rates have collapsed. I think that's a short-term collapse, but it's slowing down. If we didn't have the robots coming along, I think we would be facing a long-term, profound inflationary period. I think what the robots and automation will do, including virtual robots, you know, AI, Is take the pressure off inflation far faster in the future than could have happened any time in recent history. We're going to see inflation because this has been induced by our policymakers, but the engineers are going to take the pressure off it.
3: The public policy is unbelievably inflationary, but the rate of technological change is extraordinarily deflationary.
4: It is, and it's going to save their bacon, but it's not going to save it overnight. It won't save it in a year but I think we're going to see deflationary pressure from technology within a few years, which is very, very fast. We're already seeing some of it in the warehouse space. The growth of automation in warehouses is just at a torrid pace. The installation of robots in warehouses to move things, whether it's dark kitchens or just moving books or you know, toilet paper, it's growing at 100 to 200% a year.
3: Well, and if you look at a system like Amazon, A large part of its reach is the combination of information flow and robotics.
4: Absolutely. As I point out in my book, they epitomize the new modality, which is what engineers call cyber-physical systems, the merging of the two. That's how e-commerce works. When you hit buy now, what you're doing is you're not only lighting up computers, and communication systems all over the country and planet, you're actually animating robots in a warehouse to move the goods almost instantaneously.
3: So, tell me for a minute, how do you think all of this applies to health, which as you know went through a huge revolution in the nineteen twenties and I think the average lifespan of Americans grew very dramatically as late as nineteen hundred the average American lived to be forty six and now, of course, we live in the late seventies, although between drug addiction, suicide, and covid that's marginally come down by I think a year and a half or so, but I think that's probably a temporary problem. but how do you see? This whole synergistic revolution affecting healthcare.
4: Yeah, I think the two hardest areas to improve productivity have been healthcare, as you know, and the other services industries which relate to what we'll call entertainment and travel. They've just been very tough. But healthcare in particular, it's suffered incredible cost increases. And you get more healthcare care by spending more money with more people, which is the profound opposite of productivity, as you all know. We want to have less money, fewer people, more robots, more AI in healthcare with better outcomes. That's the economist's definition of productivity. Well, I'll give three quick examples of what we know is already happening. And again, in the book, what I try to focus on, this was the Peter Drucker line. He said he predicted the future based on what already happened. People laughed when he said it, but he was being serious. He said, I want to guess what might happen. I'm going to look at what's going on. And you look at the trend." So we already know as hard as it is to use the cloud effectively, it's getting much, much easier. So we'll talk about telemedicine in terms of telehealth and Zooming with your doctor, which was illegal. You know, a doctor couldn't provide a prescription pre-COVID on a Zoom call. Now you can release that restriction because of COVID. I think it'll stay permanently gone. That's profoundly more productive than having to drag yourself to the doctor's office. That's not nothing. The aspiration that IBM had with Watson trying to bring AI to doctors they sort of got over their skis a bit, but they were on the right track, and it's already happening, which is to say, you want artificial intelligence, which is quote, machine learning. You want computers to provide assistance to physicians on the front line, not to make the diagnosis, but when you have a computing system that can scan in milliseconds all the healthcare literature, all the technical literature about the symptoms that the doctor's seeing, and audibly say, like Siri Voice or Alexa, had you considered. Did you think about X or Y? Same is true on pathology reports. You still need a pathologist, but having a computer with computer vision that can look at the same images and say, did you look at this as well? That kind of amplifier is already in play, getting better very rapidly. And then let's just look at a drug discovery. Drug discovery now is going on in silico instead of in humans in situ. It's not perfect any more than the simulator for the airplane is exactly the same as flying it like an airplane, but it's awfully good. And so now we are already seeing, and this is not theoretical, it's what happened with the vaccines for the coronavirus. We accelerate not only the discovery of possible therapeutics by having artificial intelligence-based supercomputers that can simulate diseases and therapies. We can combine them with physical Organs on a chip, it sounds crazy to say, but the capacities with the modern machines as part of my machine thesis and 3D printers is one can actually print living tissue, the lung tissue, heart tissue, and do simulations of therapeutics inside of real living tissue to begin to look at the early testing of therapeutics in the real tissue before you do it in people. So you do it in the computers, you do it in the physical organ on a chip, and then when you get to the person, it's safer and faster. Lastly, let's just talk about physical hospitals. You're always gonna need hospitals. You need the physical buildings. One of the most annoying and difficult tasks for nurses, and it leads to a lot of occupational challenges is picking up lifting patients. It's a very simple example of moving human beings around gently it takes humans. We know we can build robots to help on that. And in fact, robots like that are already in service in some Japanese hospitals. What that means is that instead of two nurses to move a patient that needs to be moved, you have one nurse and a robot that has soft actuators that can't hurt you. The nurse now is part of the process, but I don't have two nurses in the room. I have one. That's obviously productive. I'm also relieving the possibility of having back injury for the nurse, moving a heavy patient. These are no longer science fiction ideas. These are really happening. These are deeply productive, as well as providing for better outcomes. Productive in a sense. Fewer labor, more machines, more AI, better outcomes. I think the one silver lining we're going to get from the huge missteps and how we handled the therapeutic part of this, once we finish with the (laughs) finger-pointing... which is always appropriate, if not necessary, we will, I think, get to true blue ribbon panels and begin to look at what did we do wrong? What could we do right with the technology we have today? And I think when we begin to ask those questions now with the toolkit that we have now, I think we'll see a step function change in the productivity of healthcare, including self-diagnostics, by the way. You know, we have these home test kits for COVID. They're kind of clunky, but we now know it's possible to make test kits that would be far more sophisticated, they're not commercialized yet, that would employ the computing in your smartphone to do a saliva test, for example, in a little slide that you plug into your smartphone, it'll do the analytics, and then talk to your doctor or nurse, you can keep the information secure to yourself. All those kinds of things are now emerging at proto-commercial phases To come back to your basic question, what does it mean for healthcare? It means healthcare gets more productive with better outcomes. And pretty quickly, certainly in the decade coming.
3: I once co-chaired a three-year study on Alzheimer's. And one of the things we need is precisely the kind of robotics you're describing so that the home care person, let's say your husband or your wife, you want to keep them at home. But today there are challenges of trying to get them in and out of bed and so forth. We're right at the edge of being able to decentralized robotics so that you personally will have an assistant in effect helping you which will be a huge breakthrough
4: it'd be fabulous and who doesn't want to be at home instead of in a hospital to the longest extent you could possibly do that
3: One of the greatest challenges of the next 10 to 20 years is going to be our competition with China. How do you see this revolution playing out in terms of the U.S. and China?
4: I'm fully in the camp that it's good to trade with people. It's great to exchange ideas, of course, but I'm deeply concerned about the Communist Party and their aspirations geopolitically, economically. On the technology side, we have an enormous advantage over China. One you're familiar with, I've been to maybe 15 or 20 cities in China. I like Chinese engineers. Their system, though, is profoundly antithetical to the kind of innovation that goes on in America. They're at a deep disadvantage on that. But their system has an advantage in terms of deploying technologies that have already been invented and are moving because they tilt the playing field, they subsidize the hell out of stuff and disadvantage the competition by making tariffs that are invisible or visible. And just make it impossible to compete in their markets where they have lots of people. So we have the advantage in innovation. We've shot ourselves in the foot on building the things we innovate. By, you know, we talk about manufacturing the computer chips. Manufacturing got chased out of our country by regulators. Innovators would rather build their factories here, talk to any of them. Of course, they'd rather build them here. If you made it as easy to build a factory here as it is they build a factory in China, they build them here. It's not complicated. But I think we'll probably politically get to that point. We're getting to that point pretty quickly now both parties, is my observation. Not universally, but we're getting there. And the new stuff, the new classes of computing, biocompatible computing, the new kinds of materials that'll make healthcare possible, they're all being invented here. We'll manufacture them here. It gives us an advantage. Not everything will be done here, but we're the epicenter. We still have the majority of the world's leading universities by whatever measure you want for a leading university. We have the most flexible, innovative capital system for venture capital on the planet still. We also have a real advantage in demographics. China last year, not because of COVID, went into negative population growth rate. That's a deep disadvantage because what that means is over the coming half century, the age of their workforce is getting older much faster than our workforce. We're getting older too, but a much slower rate. So the average age of the Productive workforce in America is going to be much lower than China very soon. That hugely disadvantages them. These are all good things for the economy. They're not great things geopolitically because it's going to stress China. And it's going to create incentives on their part to do things that are, frankly, politically worrisome. So I think we have inherent advantages culturally, technologically, and demographically. If we can take advantage of those without being idiots, (laughs) which is not guaranteed. I mean, I understand that. But if we can, I think we can exercise the kind of a soft power that's extraordinarily important and powerful over history. I, mean, I worked in defense weapon systems. I think we have to continue to invest in our military so that it becomes untenable for anybody to want to compete with us militarily. But that should just be in the background, right? What should be in the foreground is an incredibly powerful soft power both in technology and, as I write in my book, also in energy. I mean, the energy advantages that America has is a technological advantage that we're in the process of trying to squander, but I don't think we'll squander it.
3: John Moody wrote a fascinating novel called Of Course They Knew, which is about Wuhan and COVID. But the thing I find most fascinating about it is his portrait, and he wrote it deliberately as a novel because he said he couldn't prove all this, but his portrait of The Chinese thinking about artificial intelligence and particularly the use of it to manipulate public opinion, particularly in our country because we're so open, that you get so much stuff on the internet, you have no idea whether it's true or not, and it sounds true. How do you see artificial intelligence playing into the revolution you're describing?
4: As I write in my book, it's a central feature of how computing has changed, but it's important to know what we really mean by that phrase. It was created in the mid-50s by computer scientist McCarthy at Dartmouth, who's still alive and with us, a brilliant guy. He may regret creating the phrase because artificial intelligence isn't. (laughs) It isn't intelligence. It's like calling a car an artificial horse or an airplane an artificial bird. Obviously, there's some functional overlap, but they're very different. When computers engage in inference, It's opposed to calculation, which is what AI really means. That's a very different thing. And this is an important point that I think is lost on a lot of people. Because then once you understand what AI really is, you know why it's a powerful adjunct, an amplifier to humans, just the way that we amplify our muscles with machines, we amplify our cognition with artificial intelligence. We don't replace it. One plus one equals two. That's what computers do. They compute. There's only one answer, and it's the right answer. That's not what inference is. I want a computer not to say the answer is go this way. It would be, this is probably a better way to go based on what I know now. Let's use traffic as an example. Based on the traffic information I have now and what I think your behaviors are and you want to avoid tolls. So probably this is the way you're going to go. And as we all know from using mapping programs, Nine times out of the 10, it's a pretty good map, right? But one time out of 10, it got it wrong. I mean, they didn't see some traffic or it's not how I want to behave. But that's not a calculation. That's inference. AI does that stuff. Very useful. It's getting the answer about right. But that requires intervention of human behavior as well. So they complement each other as opposed to replace each other. Now, would somebody with an AI-enabled earbud... That's pick whatever job it is, whether it's your desk clerk at a hotel or whether you're manufacturing something or you're a plumber. It'd be great to have your work have a computer remotely when you run into a problem and you say, you know, I want to look at the drawing for X to know whether I don't recognize this machine or this body part or this animal or whatever it is. And what do you think I should do? I mean, you'd say to the computer, It might give you a recommendation that you say, I hadn't thought of. Great. Well, that's AI. This is really, really powerful stuff. Does it replace humans? Sure, in the same way that the Luddites were right. Their automated loom eliminated their jobs, but it didn't eliminate all jobs, and it didn't eliminate the work of humans in clothing. It just changed the work they did.
3: So let me ask I can't help myself. You're so interesting, and you have such a broad range. What are you working on now? (laughs) (laughs)
4: Well, other than our venture fund, where we're looking for software and energy, because it's exciting to think about how you bring the digitalization, if you like, of the energy business. It's really hard to do. Well, I can confess to you, I guess I'm going to be confessing this to more people than just you, since you have a big audience. Like you, I like fiction as well. And I have written a science fiction book, which I now have to turn back to and clean up because Fiction writing is very different. Writing is a lonely business, but it's a very different... You have to get your brain in a different mode, and so I have to get out of prediction mode that's supposed to be realistic, <laughs> which is what my book's about, and get into prediction mode that's kind of fun and not so realistic.
3: So I find fiction writing harder than nonfiction.
4: It is a different skill, but it's important to stretch your brain there. Manhattan Institute, which is my home for policy meddling... I'm still working on energy areas. I'm going to be doing a study. My nominal title for it is The End of the Age of Oil? The answer is no, never. But that's the study, which I'll put out in a policy kind of framework. People are set up in their head as they are going to eliminate the use of oil in cars and all kinds of places overnight. You know, maybe in a century. I'm working on that. And the other thing I'm working on, of course, is one of my favorite subjects is to understand what science is and specifically what it means to fund science if you're in the government. Because we're about to embark again, as you know, on this massive effort that Schumer started with and a lot of Republicans got on board with, you know, the Endless Frontiers Act, to throw huge amounts of money at science. And there's a lot of support for that. But I think we're throwing the money at the wrong stuff. And we don't understand what science is. So I'm going to do a policy paper on what it is that we got wrong and why it's important to get it right.
3: I look forward to your paper, and I think it's a very important topic. I hope, I'm glad you're working on it. Mark, what do you think the next 10 years look like?
4: If we don't Sovietize our economy through political malfeasance, <laughs> I think we're going to see economic growth outstrip anything that's happened in the last 20 years and return to the kind of raw, raw growth that happened because of the Reagan boom this time, and for this similar reasons, because of a technology efflorescence. So we need to unleash it. You know what that means in terms of markets and light-handed regulation.
3: Mark, do you think that a big technology could be on the edge of emerging that would change society as much as, for example, the internet or the smartphone did in the last generation?
4: Yeah, I do. It's already visible. It's called the cloud. (laughs) That's the title of my book. The cloud is very new. It's not even a decade old in the framing of what we would call the cloud. And a decade into the internet... It was still not a big deal. People were barely doing You Got Mail and AOL. And as the internet took off, it changed the world. We are just at the beginning of the cloud expanding and changing the world.
3: We will see as the web Telescope continues to evolve just how much we really can learn at the margins. It'll be fun. Mark, I want to thank you for joining me today. I think the future you're describing is exciting, and I think it's historically probably right. And I want to recommend to our listeners that they read your book, The Cloud Revolution, How the Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the Next Economic Boom in a Roaring 2020s. And we'll have a link to your book on our show page.
4: Thank you, Newt. That's very generous. Enjoy talking to you and thank you for your service. You've been an inspiration to so many of us.
3: Thank you to my guest, Mark Mills. You can get a link to buy his book, The Cloud Revolution, how the convergence of new technologies will unleash the next economic boom in a roaring 2020s on our show page at Newsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeart Media. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pendley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
2: Zumo Play.
0: work.